Hello and welcome to Sounds Like a Plan, a podcast all about how the music world is taking action in our climate crisis. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Cochran, a podcaster and journalist. And I'm Faye Milton, a musician with the band Savages and the co-founder of Music Declares Emergency, a movement bringing people together from across the industry to tackle the climate emergency. This time on Sounds Like a Plan, we reflect on Earth Day 2021 and what was a huge week for climate action and commitments, both in and out of the music world. And our guest is Jamie Oburn, the boss of the independent record label Dirty Hit and the manager of the 1975, a band who've been a leading force in music and climate the past few years. We hear about his moves to make Dirty Hit more environmentally conscious and get a few hints about what a new, less carbon heavy touring live show could look like for the 1975. Jamie also tells us about the experience of the 1975 coming together to collaborate with the world's best known climate activist Greta Thunberg. Fascinating to hear that story and everything that went with it. Plus we'll leave you some recommendations as usual. So let's get into the podcast. Faye, you made it. You made it through what was probably one of the busiest weeks ever for music and climate action. Uh, Music Declares Emergency were ramping up to Earth Day 2021 uh, last week with a huge programme of events and workshops and live streams and radio shows, talks and gigs. I mean, I just, it was everywhere. It was brilliant. How did it go? How are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, it was a crazy week and it has been amazing. We've just had support from right across the musical spectrum through classical, grime, heavy metal, pop, um, indie. Yeah, it's been it's been incredible seeing these amazing, iconic artists wearing our T-shirts, sharing the message. um, No music on a dead planet, of course. And yeah, just really blown away by it all. And it has been an endurance test. <laughs> <laughs> what um what were some of the highlights? So I mean the the, the week started. I mean we'll, we'll perhaps talk about this in a second. But the week started with um some big independent record labels making pledges around climate action and sustainability. But outside of that, what were some of the highlights? What were some of the events? Some of the things that were going on that you thought were great? Well, we had a really amazing panel with Rough Trade um, that was talking about the future of recorded music, where vinyl's going, stuff like that. Um, and that was um, Hannah Peel was part of that, Tristian from Worldwide FM. And that was brilliant. Um, we've had an amazing classical music day on Sunday with loads of classical artists getting involved and sharing their solos. Um, we had some really great T-shirt endorsers. Um, Declan McKenna really stepped up and mm-hmm. sort of shared our T-shirt. We, oh, of course, the t-shirts i mean we had Hmm. a new design created by joy division and peter savile reworking their original unknown pleasures artwork which is the the one with all of the sort of wavy lines in it that sort of iconic artwork and they recreated Hmm. that for us with flat lines saying no music on the dead planet sort of representing the silence of a of a dead planet ultimately and an amazing t-shirt collaboration with luke priest who's worked in heavy metal world and that got them to the front cover of Kerrang, which was incredible. Um, loads of uh, rock and metal bands got involved. Architects, Biffy Clyro, Enter Shikari made some great films that were really incredible. And yeah, and an amazing uh, t-shirt collaboration with Kate Moross as well, Studio Moross. So that was this bright, vibrant, really cool t-shirt that, that came out as well. So yeah, it's, I mean, so much happened, so much. We had loads of panels, radio, we got onto the radio, we got onto, um, yeah, all sorts of places and an amazing live event on Saturday as well. So yeah, it was, it was bonkers. Yeah. In terms of the pledges, so there were some significant pledges from um, a couple of the big, or a couple of the biggest independent record labels in the UK, the Beggars Group mm-hmm. and Ninja Tune. They started the week by revealing that they both um, had plans to go carbon negative, which is a really, really big deal. Um, you know, in, in our music and climate world, that's two really well-known um, organisations taking a real kind of front and centre lead. How significant were, were those announcements, do you think? And do you think that will have some kind of knock-on effect? Do you think what they're doing will encourage other labels, possibly even bigger organisations, to follow suit? Well, I just think the the main thing is the, the real ambition and the real... Um, taking you know we all we all bands around the term climate emergency but it's but then we're saying oh let's go carbon neg- carbon neutral by 2050 and that just seems like a long way off but mm. they're saying they're going to be carbon negative within two years um which mm. is 
bonkers. And that is basically taking on an emergency and acting as if it's an emergency, which it is. So that's, I mean, it's just brilliant and so positive to see these two sort of massive uh, labels and groups of labels taking the stuff seriously. And I just, I think other other industries and other companies can follow suit and say, okay, these guys are doing it, we can do it too. So I, I think it's hugely important. And we, I mean, we've known about their plans for quite a while. And one of the reasons we wanted to shout about it and encourage them to speak up and out about it was that it will trigger action in other areas mm. of the industry. Um, I think, mm. you know, people don't want to be too loud about their sustainability targets in case they get it wrong or in case, mm-hmm. you know, then they're sort of held to task by people. But it is really important to to share the, the positives that are happening because we've, you know, we've heard the doom and gloom, but we really need to um, understand that change is possible and things you know things can and will improve so yeah it's really really significant yeah and if people miss their target by a week let's not shout them down let's (laughs) applaud them for for having the endeavor to do it and actually go out and and take that action so a shout out to both those labels who have released some incredible music over the years and Mm. really really taking a lead on this issue um it's a strange one isn't it because like earth day has become this huge big deal now um Mm don't know what the right word is i don't want to call it like a kind of big commercialized thing like valentine's day or something mm. but it is this enormous hook isn't it that, that that comes around and people celebrate and brands talk about and and you almost kind of can't get away from on the day itself inevitably things kind of go a little bit quieter from this week onwards because last week there was all the everything was going on there was all this noise and all mm. this this people talking and voices and action and pledges and all that stuff going on so how do we keep our foot on the gas uh, which is a terrible analogy to use <laughs> on a climate podcast um how, how do we keep the momentum going because yeah it, it earth day is an enormous hook isn't it but mm. but it's only one day of the year we need we need people to be on this 365 days of the year so have you got any thoughts on that well yeah i mean i I agree that we need to be on it free for 165 days a year, but also it's it's impossible for for most people in their in their work and their headspace to sort of constantly mm. badger away at this. So it is really important to have these sort of big moments where everyone's talking about it. Otherwise, it sort of just joins the noise. So I think um, the next is it's about looking to the next moment, really, which is um, the lead up to COP26, which is the UN climate negotiations. In um, they're going to be held in Glasgow in. Um, November so Mm -hmm. heading up to that from September onwards there's going to be some like huge huge um, events festivals talks panels protests there's going to be everything so one of the things is I guess if you want to get involved now is a brilliant time because all of those plans are being made and you can be part Mm. of making something making history really so do get involved in your local groups or sort of national international groups of which there are tons yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant advice. Um, a final mention before we before we uh, introduce this week's guest. Uh, music is obviously just one corner of the sort of giant superstructure that is climate and climate emergency and climate action. Um, and as we talked about before, for the changes we need to take place, the actions of governments and big businesses are absolutely key right at the center of Mm. it and this week the uk announced um or last week the uk government announced that they were bringing forward their climate commitments saying that that they would um cut carbon emissions by 78 percent by 2035 that's bringing it forward by 15 years and a big Mm. focus of that is going to be on electrifying transport and renewable energy and cutting down on meat and dairy um and if this did become law, this would be a world leading position on, on climate. Mm. Um, but um, I must say, like saying all of that, that there is not necessarily that much detail in there as yet as we're recording this. It's all still very broad at this stage, but that does sound like progress. Um, what do you think? It, it, does that sound encouraging? Is that the right sort of noises that you want to be hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was stuck in the the absolute middle of uh, doing the, the week and all the activities and like, the radio came on and said the government are pushing forward their target to be i think something like 75 percent ish Mm. carbon free by 2035 and i thought well i think this is probably because we've just released a really amazing joy division t-shirt i think that was a direct (laughs) knock on (laughs) of that but um in a real sense it is it is huge that's great i mean i i don't 
really trust the government so it's like yay but also really okay cool mm. so um we shall see but yeah i mean it's great that the targets are there it's i haven't probably had enough time or spoken to enough people about the ins and outs of it to really sort mm. of get my teeth into the depths of of what that means and and if it's looking like the right path from the climate movement's perspective but i mean of course it's super welcome i mean it's this 2050 date is has been in people's minds for ages and it's we're all fried if we're heading for 2050 it just seems so far off 2035 is a much more realistic time to be um to be going yeah 75 percent. i mean at music declares emergency and all of our supporters which is most of the uk music industry we want like net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 so it's not quite up to our target yet i mean that is the target where we will be safe so that's what we'd like to see but 2035 okay let's let's push it to that and then see if we can go any faster yeah and literally as we record this one of the tabs on my laptop is open with the bbc news live blog because the u.s uh president joe biden is hosting a two-day climate summit and as of just like a couple of hours ago um there was a big announcement that the u.s has updated its carbon pledge as well that will see its emissions cut nearly uh, by half by 2030 so it does feel like i mean particularly it, it's important that the biggest players i mean the uk is important but you know when we we're, we're talking the us and we're talking places like china on a whole different level altogether so yeah it's been a pretty momentous week for climate action not just in the music industry but more mm. broadly so let's hope that this this carries on uh, in in the weeks and the months to come because um it's very very welcome indeed yeah it is and it's yeah we need it and it's it almost feels like a, a dream i think a few years ago maybe around five years ago if you were no one was even talking about climate so it Mm. just felt bleak at that point when you realize what the science was looking like but but really yeah now it feels like things are moving and it's kind of it's hard to get your head around a bit what's you know how that's actually going to happen for a start and and then it's it's hard it's hard when you're I guess you're fighting the powers that be and then the powers that be do what you want you kind of start doing what you want them to do and then you're like oh are we still fighting <laughs> I don't yeah know what's going i think on we're anymore. definitely i mean at this stage i'd say we're definitely still fighting yeah like ch- check back in in five years time when, like you know it's <laughs> yeah. sort of like the halftime report and go mm, i'm still not sure you're doing what you said you were going to do so yeah yeah the, the, i think i think the fight is still very it's still very real and very real it is yeah. it is <laughs> um shall we introduce this week's guest on the podcast yes so we are both delighted to have uh, spoken to Jamie Oban recently. His record label and the band he manages, the 1975, haven't just been a leading voice on climate advocacy in music the past few years, but they've backed it up with tangible action for, for example, it's been amazing to see fans of the band come together to support their reforestation campaigns and mm. literally plant trees together on the day of uh, 1975 concerts. That's brilliant. Um But there was so much to talk to Jamie about, not least the 1975's collaboration with Greta Thunberg, which was released in 2019. So let's get into it. We'll have a bit of a chat about this afterwards. But this is Jamie Oban on Sounds Like a Plan. Jamie, welcome to Sounds Like a Plan. This is a podcast about people in the music community who are involved in some kind of climate action or um, environmentalism or sustainability. Somebody, people that are being proactive, basically. Um, So before we get into your work with Dirty Hit and the 1975 and everything else, I was just wondering if you're able to pinpoint a specific moment when you first realised that you wanted or that you needed to be more active with all of this kind of stuff. I think over the last few years, obviously, like many of us, I started noticing more in my everyday experience of the world, this sort of impending climate crisis. I have two young kids. So I think initially it was partly born out of my fear of, for their future it was kind of, it was somewhat of, of a selfish motivation, really. It was more about, you know, my worries for like their lives. And that was combined with um, my daughter, especially, who's now 13. When she was about nine or 10, 
you know, it became a great topic of conversation really in our house. And she was very proactive in trying to get us to be um, better humans, I guess, and less wasteful and take things like recycling a bit more serious. And so it was, it was two things really. One part was that. And another part was, like I said, my experience of the world somewhat shifted and, and I just started feeling quite, um, not depressed, but um, I was, I just became sort of just quite fearful of the future in a way. And I've, I'm naturally quite an optimistic person, you know? So it was quite a new thing for me to have this sort of overarching sort of fear of what was to come. And I was quite frustrated with sort of my perceived lack of a focus that anyone was really putting on this stuff. And I, I kind of like maths. So science is kind of a more believable religion for me <laughs> than any form of organized religion, if that makes any sense. So mm. I think I was naturally sort of predisposed to sort of understand like, you know, the information that we often see written in newspapers or broadcast in the news that I think sometimes it just bounces off people, doesn't it? And I found it really penetrating me. I didn't want to be like another person who doesn't do anything because they can't do it 100% perfectly mm. out of the gate and are worried about being called a hypocrite for not having it. They're worried about being called a hypocrite by hypocritical people because we can't figure it out in one day. And it just, mm. and I just felt like that was kind of bullshit, honestly. Mm. And um, it's things just started really happening. And I, and as I sort of exposed myself, I guess, to more information, I became more and more sort of passionate about it. And, and, you know, like most people, like I have the kind of a fear of death. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it was sort of, it was pretty... Um, it's, a, it's a big one. Yeah, <laughs> so it was sort of, it didn't seem like too much of a question as to whether or not I would try and be more focused on sustainability, like more focused on sort of survival. <laughs> I think being an optimist plays into that as well. You described yourself as an, as an optimist and I think I'm similar, I'm... I'm maybe over optimistic a lot of the time but I think to start dipping your attention into this climate world once you know the science and to try and make changes you have to be really optimistic because when you look at the science it's 100% doom really it was 99% doom and then you have to use that 1% of like okay we can pull this out the bag and actually focus your attention on pushing that one percent to two three four five percent I don't know where this uh mathematical analogy is going but it really is about focusing on that optimism and I also couldn't agree with you more on the don't let the uh, the fear of being called a hypocrite by other hypocrites stop you from taking action I had a really good phrase from Brian Eno which is it's probably a really well-known phrase but it's don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good so it's like don't because you can't be perfect nothing's perfect and certainly not in this world and sustainability etc don't let that stop you from you know at least taking some steps because every journey starts with a first step yeah yeah well honestly <laughs> like i i say that that's kind of one of my mantras in a way is that i often say to our artists you know the trick to progress or traveling a long way is to make sure that every day, you know, we take a, a step forward, an achievable step forward. And over the course of the year, one finds that they travel a long way. But I also, I, I, I agree with, when you look at the data, like there is no time. <laughs> like we're, we're kind of out of time, you know. Yeah. We're so out of time that the most proactive thing we felt we could do is contribute towards reforestation in the short term as aggressively as we could because it seems like a kind of a stupid thing to say but we need like 
practical actions to help us buy a little bit of time so we can mm. figure out this bigger problem, you know. Absolutely. And also creating a, a noise around the issues, putting it into the, the public domain, I think, is sort of one of the key things. And it's amazing the work that the 1975 have done on doing that and publicising the issues. I was really disappointed with how Extinction Rebellion were really painted as villains by the media. Mm. It was quite depressing to mm. see that happen, you know. It was, and being part of that movement and seeing that happening and, you know, Boris Johnson criticising the movement and saying just absurd sort of things about it. It was it was really disheartening, but I read a really good article sort of uh, about a year ago or something that said Extinction Rebellion aren't there to be liked. They're there to draw attention to something. And in that way, they've absolutely succeeded. It's not a PR exercise. It's not a campaign to be loved and enjoyed you know it's not they're not setting out to do that I think they achieved what they set out to do but became hated in the process of it yeah it's just strange I, I remember I was in my office is on Latimer Road and we're very near the Portobello Road and I remember one day like walking up Portobello Road and there was a very this was a like quite a time ago now maybe as long as four years ago and there was a tiny group of extinction rebellion activists walking up portobello road on like a kind of a embryonic kind of march it was so peculiar because there was these people all like kind of lining the streets going about their business watching them sort of mocking them and i just kind of felt like it was such a bizarre thing to witness you know what i mean i don't think people have figured out that you know this potential kind of doomsday scenario is um it affects everyone equally it's going to be a great um leveling experience mm. yeah eventually jamie can i ask you a little bit about dirty hit and i mean the fact that the label's been going for over a decade but obviously in the past few years as you've already started talking about like you've taken steps to be more environmentally conscious so what have some of those things been and how do you sort of rate the the progress that you've made so far i mean honestly sometimes i get a bit embarrassed because we're often used as this sort of example of what people should be doing and in truth like we're doing very little honestly like i would hate to sit here and tell you that we have all this stuff figured out like, i mean we don't use plastics anymore which is a, a good start but but i feel like as a record label, everything we can do, we've kind of done. Like we've minimized our waste. We only make products that can be made of recyclable material. Like, I mean, I would kind of like to not make any physical products at all, if I'm being quite honest. <laughs> um, I think everyone <laughs> might think I've gone mad if I do that. <laughs> but um, the, main, the main push, honestly, has been around live and for the longest time I felt like the live arena is really wasteful and really kind of quite grotesque when I really sort of break it down and it's the most sort of commercialized area of the business I think and Matthew and I we became quite embarrassed of the amount of shit we were carrying around the world, to be quite honest. We loved our shows. We loved the production. But it just, there was a point in time where we just both were like, this no longer feels like a sort of future-facing expression. It feels like an echo from the past, you know what I mean? And, and then, obviously, we had to stop touring anyway because um, of covid and in a way, it's given us an opportunity to totally review what we're doing because we had this realisation sort of midway through kind of our tour plans, really. And, you know, we raised a lot of money and planted a lot of trees. But what we felt would be really effective would be to try and use the shows to kind of like educate people a bit and not in a sort of because I know, you know, honestly, like, I feel like I'm a student of this stuff, so I would hate to sort of be portrayed like I, I feel like I have this virtue that others don't. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out myself, you know what I mean? 
so we did all all the, like the usual sort of stuff like you know planting trees and raising money and whatever but what i really liked was we partnered with these people called reverb and mm. we set up these sort of like eco villages where um people could come and you know just get information and practical advice on how to pick up activism or just how to be more environmentally sort of conscious and what practices to employ and kids seem to really kind of like appreciate and, and buy into that sensibility and it became part of like the sort of community of the shows you know what I mean mm. which was really amazing and it was cut short in truth because we had to stop touring and you know I was pretty excited because there was a bunch of things that we were going to do and we decided to do our own show in Finsbury Park and one thing that you probably that not many people probably won't know is Melvin who's one of the main people at Live Nation is is very committed environmentalist he's brilliant yeah and he when I explained to him you know what the band and I wanted to do he really kind of was pretty instrumental in helping us put on what would have been like the greenest show like ever put on <laughs> you know what I mean it, it was it, it would have been awesome it obviously didn't happen in the end because it was supposed to be um last summer and we we've ended up now just cancelling it because mm. I, I didn't want to be like another organization sitting on kids or anyone's like money ticket money but what, one of the good things about those plans is that half of the hard work is done. You know, it goes into the planning and working out the logistics of how you're going to pull something off. So that work, it doesn't get taken away. You can hopefully reuse it in future. I've got, I've got a little, I'm intrigued to know something, actually. It's something you mentioned at the top of the interview is that you're sort of um, emotionally put onto climate issues through your daughter, who was, did you say nine or 10 years old? and bringing the issues to you and also it kind of ties in with the 1975s audience a lot of them will be quite young and there's the climate villages do you first of all how where did your daughter get her information from out of interest and how did that pass on to you and do you think that that's something that 1975 fans can then pass on to older generations and kind of a third part of the question is why why is it that way round? why are we being taught by our children yeah okay i think her information came from her school mm. i think as always you know the quickest way to affect any sort of social change is through education and it's unfortunate that um that i think as a society we probably had at least a couple of generations of not really investing as as much as perhaps we should in education and then wonder why the adult population make slightly ignorant actions <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, and I include myself in that group honestly so I think her entry point was very much through um, education and you know probably social media and the growing sort of at the time the swell that was around the Greta. How does that do you think the 1975's work with their fans can then filter up? I think in a similar way like any sort of exchange of information with like-minded people results in sort of you know a better understanding and and encourages like a, a an exchange of more information and the 1975 and dirty hit we're very lucky to have had this kind of amazing like community around us from day one and it's still growing and we're very protective of it and um we we're always trying to make sure that um our community like the, the band's audience, label's audience is sort of respected and never feels sort of exploited. And I think, you know, that r roles kind of 
nicely into the third part of your question. I think really, like, if you want to affect change anywhere, you you have to um, convert the youth. So, I think naturally, as people grow up with better ideals, morals, even. I don't know. That just feels like evolution to me. I don't really know how else to describe it. Do you know what I mean?、Mm. Um, It's affecting the future. Yeah, I think so. I think the the young are always gonna be the people who progress things, aren't they? Yeah, Jamie, you've mentioned the、um, the Greta Thunberg collaboration、uh, with the 1975 a couple of times. Um, she appears on、um, the first track on Notes on a Conditional Form. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, you went and met Greta and her family when that was recorded, and what was that experience like? It was a really kind of magical sort of period, honestly, and and it makes me really sad when I think back because, like I said earlier, I was I was so sort of hyped for twenty twenty, and like you know, it was like the, all of these great sort of principles were converging. And we were going to make so much progress. I felt, do you know what I mean? It was. I was really excited. I remember talking about it with my wife on New Year's Eve, <laughs> on 2019 <laughs> New Year's Eve.、Um, I was really excited about the future. But yeah, like rewinding a little bit, it must have been like the spring of 2018. Matthew and I were at my office, and we were. Doing his usual, like, just kind of like <laughs> assaulting me with all his ideas, <laughs> and、um, we were just brainstorming as we do a lot. And so many of our of our like the best things we've done sort of originate like that. We were talking about like features on music, and he had become really obsessed with using his position. As the singer in in you know one of the biggest bands in the world, I guess he wanted to use it for sort of something more esteemable than perhaps what we've all become used to from any anyone who holds any position of authority. And、um, I think he arrived at that place because you know his life is he finds it pretty confusing, honestly. Like I would imagine a lot of artists do when they if they get in that position. And I think it helped him kind of like make sense of of his position a little bit to、um, you know lift others up. Anyway, we were in my office and we were talking about this notion, and and I said to him, like, who's the most important person in the world? And he said, Greta Thunberg. <laughs> and it was kind of from there. I think what happened next. So we decided that.、Um, We would try and convince her to、uh, be on a song, and it would be like the anti-feature. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and、um, and we both got really excited about it, and、um, and then I was obviously left with the task of sorting it. <laughs> and get Greta. <laughs> yeah, and then、um, I don't know why I get emotional when I'm talking about this. I'm such a doofus.、Um, <laughs> And、uh, a couple of days later, I was talking to our publicist and just telling her about this idea, and, and she said to me, "Oh well, do you want me to introduce you to the environmental editor of the Guardian because he'll know her or how to get in contact with her?" And and I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good starting point. And、um, later that afternoon, I ended up on the phone with this guy. <laughs> And I gave, and you know, I must, I must have like given him the same kind of treatment as that I just described to you from getting from Matthew, just you know, just like assaulting him with this idea. And he really liked it, and、um, and offered to、um, introduce me to Sponte, her father,、mm. and、um, told me not to expect or not to be too surprised if I didn't get a response. Because she gets a lot of people like asking her for shit, so he introduced me. I sent Svante、um, a brief explanation of what we wanted to do. He emailed me back 
really quickly with his cell number. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much time passed, but I guess I, I, knowing how exciting it was, I probably called him immediately and we spoke and kind of like connected really easily. Honestly, he's a really lovely man. And yeah, and, and they agreed to do it. And then a few weeks later, I think, or maybe a week or two later, I can't remember exactly how long, the boys were in, um, were traveling through Sweden because um, they were, you know, playing festivals through the summer. And we met Greta and her father in a studio in Stockholm and recorded, you know, the, her vocal for that track. And it was honestly, it was really inspiring. There was no one thing that she did that really inspired us. It was more kind of, we were just both kind of blown away by her ultimate like punk attitude. Like she just didn't give a fuck. Like literally she didn't give a fuck. The only thing she cares about is everyone sort of understanding you know, what's happening. Mm. You know what I mean? And like the yeah. science of what's happening. It's She has such an incredible focus. It's like focused on the message. And if there's any fluff or chat or bits and bobs around it, not interested. It's all about the message. Yeah. Not even, not in a bad way, just in a really focused, ethereal and punk way. Yeah, you're right. Totally, totally. And, you know, and they... You know, they they were in the studio and I was talking to her father. And, and at one point I said to him, oh, you know, you must be like so proud of, of Greta. She's amazing. And he was like, yeah, like everyone always says that to me. And then he was like, you know, like not that long ago, like a few years ago, she was really kind of like lost and had no kind of purpose, I guess. And mm. and now she had a purpose that he was kind of, he kind of said that he was just chasing that. Mm. And there was a purity to it. Like he's, like everyone always says, wow, you must be so proud of Greta. And his response was, yeah, but it's not even about that. It's kind of like, you know, for him, he's seeing his daughter sort of thrive, if you know what I mean. And, Mm. make sense of the world and herself and her part in it and he was just like I'm kind of chasing that you know kind of beautiful actually and he kept saying to me he was like oh you guys are so brave for doing this and I was like <laughs> well, I didn't really understand what he meant honestly at the time mm. and he was like um, we've tried to do this a few times with different people mm. and um, they've always said no because they don't want the negative exposure. They don't want um, to be divisive. They don't want to split, you know, audiences. Like all this fucking mm. bullshit excuses. And um, and he was like, "You guys are so brave." And I was like, <laughs> I, "I." The reason I'm laughing is because later that night, <laughs> Matthew and I went to dinner in Stockholm, and it was really nice actually because we were always so busy and we had this like moment of sort of calm and it was just me and him and we didn't have we didn't have to be anywhere it wasn't mm. a show we didn't even have our security it was just like me not off his security <laughs> it was just <laughs> it was just me and him in like a little back street restaurant in Stockholm and it was just a lovely evening do you know what I mean and I remember saying to him oh Wow, like Spontae's so paranoid. So par <laughs> and Matthew's like, yeah, fuck, he's so paranoid. Like, geez, you know, and we just didn't think anything more of it. I'm fascinated to hear you say that, Jamie. That just feels so ex unexpected, doesn't it? Because the release of the track did cause like some controversy. I mean, you had. For example, a conservative MP, David Davis, wrote an open letter saying, you know, how can you how can the 1975 uh, collaborate with Greta Thunberg and make money for Extinction Rebellion whilst jetting across the world? I think was his words. That dude is just a fucking idiot. I mean, he, <laughs> he may as well not exist in my world. You know, what I mean? seriously, I mean, it's like that I find that that one I found quite laughable. Like, I'll tell you some other ones oh. that were a bit more menacing. 
But I mean, that dude is just a fucking idiot, isn't he? <laughs> and as far as I'm aware, he got absolutely taken taken down for that. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Were you surprised then? I mean, it sounds like Svante was kind of anticipating the controversy, whereas you thought you you were kind of almost like, no, of course that's not going to happen. And 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 what kind of things did come your way? Okay, so yeah, so we we agreed that he was a little bit paranoid, and um. And then we didn't really think anything more of it, honestly. We just sort of, you know, we had to finish the record and Matthew was on tour and everything rolled on. We were becoming progressively, like, you know, more exposed to, you know, activism and information. And we were becoming, like, progressively more kind of aware that, you know, change kind of starts with us. You know, Matthew was, and I, we were, you know, like I said before, we were a bit sort of embarrassed about the scale of the show. And mm. I was kind of, I've become obsessed with the weight of the show <laughs> because mm. it's carbon footprint was not good. And I'm guessing for, for the listeners by that, you mean the haulage, like how much it weight you're carrying yeah. around the world for the set design and the PA and all the equipment. The more we made this realization the more we realized that we had to sort of change like our our entire approach you know what I mean and we needed to reimagine production and how we do you know high intensity high production show that's still lightweight and and it's sustainable and like we have and now we have some amazing ideas and I'm really excited to execute them and it's going to be brilliant but then it was there was lots of I was I was just very focused on evolving really so everything continued like normal and um the day the song came out I I remember the day really well I was in LA with my family um I had gone there for um the summer a lot of our business is there these days and we've opened an office there and and I was um out there setting up the album really um and Matthew and the band were in London making a video it was the hottest day of the year um I don't know if you remember it was the hottest day ever recorded actually in England and um it was like a kind of like a convergence of all these things that that kind of matched the song it was really odd anyway so it came out on that day the day before I'd started to experience rumblings and a few kind of tabloidy people had been hitting me up on email and and I could tell that I didn't really have much experience of that side of media honestly because we've always you know, I've often said, like, the 1975 is the biggest cult band in the world, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the average person wouldn't have a clue who they are, mm. but, like, ask ask a kid who wears black clothing who they are. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they know exactly. Um, so we, we've never really existed in that realm. Do you know what I mean? And I noticed that, that I was getting so many strange questions from journalists, from tabloids and stuff and I and I always I always just ignore them but this was like a new like velocity of questioning do you know what I mean anyway a, a good friend of mine who's a journalist um I was kind of worried about Matthew honestly so I was worried about he was you know finishing making a record he was really exhausted he was you know had had a um, you know you can read up about all of the trials that he has faced in his life with addiction and stuff and he he wasn't like in the greatest of spaces mentally and I was concerned about what would happen if all of a sudden like loads of publications started criticizing him I was genuinely kind of worried about the effect of that on him so I spoke Mm. to a friend of mine and and I decided to go like on the record about why we were doing it Mm-hmm. Uh, and honestly, it wasn't. It was more so that if I, what I'd, what I've kind of learned in press is that you know I could take the story almost away from him and put it on myself. 
you know what I mean? Mm. So anyway, I, I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I mean, it just, I was just a bit worried, really. I could just feel like some like wave of weird conversation was coming, you know? And um, anyway, so I spoke to my friend who ended up running a news piece about it. And and I think I even said, you know, in that, in that article that, the greatest kind of failing would be to not do anything for fear of being criticised, you know what I mean? And and, mm. I, and we as a group of people didn't want to be just another group of spectators watching the end of the fucking world, do you know what I mean? And anyway, then the song came out and <laughs> and it was it was wildly exciting <laughs> and um and it felt like, you know it had transcended like just music and it mm. had become like a kind of an actual news story. It was crazy. Mm. It was so exciting. And for a brief minute, we forgot all of our worries <laughs> <laughs> about it. And, um, and it was, it was amazing. And then it kind of like, it, and, it, and of course within the community, it was, it was, you know, it was celebrated as it should and be. The track's brilliant as well. I think there's, it's not as easy as people might think to make something like that sound so... I mean, it's a beautiful track and it's got this ethereal nature to it, but it could have been so done wrong. It could have been cringy as, as hell. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And it was so mm. powerful. And yeah, no, the music is beautiful, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, and, the, and so it came out and, and it was half applauded half sort of condemned and then all the negativity sort of crept in on day two and then onwards and then loads of tabloids started running stories about Matthew like just like weird weirdly fabricated things like just like stuff you know like I mean I've managed him for 13 years like he's Mm. you know one of my best friends I know intimate details of his life well enough to know what is true and what's not true. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was so random. Not things I really want to dwell on or highlight again, but just the usual kind of it's kind of rubbish. Do you know what I mean? Just like it was it was bizarre actually. Like weird kind of teenage playground takedowns. Yeah, there was just like just like just fabrications like that he had split up from his girlfriend you know like because he because he was back on drugs like i mean it was just like random shit you know what i mean mm. just like like wasn't wasn't even true yeah, but but i guess the the point i guess if i'm making a point it was more that um it felt like the same discreditation that i felt dished out on a much broader mainstream level to extinction rebellion i was feeling thrown out uh, my artist and, and me, I guess, it, to a lesser extent. And I just found it bizarre. I mean, it, you can probably see, like, I'm mm. here that I'm quite, kind of confused about it still. You know, it's just, mm. it was such a bizarre reaction to such a, a unifying statement, really, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jamie, I've got, I've got one more question for you. You've spoken in the past about how you felt that it's important that artists create a conversation around things that they uh, are passionate about things that they think are important we've talked lots in this podcast about the 1975 and the way that they've done that how important do you think it is that climate as an urgent issue is involved in the conversations like you know your, your other artists that you work with I mean not everybody is the 1975 are they they're they're maybe not as confident about talking about the issue or uh, what I guess just unpacking that, that idea of like We've talked so much about how urgent this is. How do you see it going forward? Are artists going to talk about it more? You know, is this is it just going to be some of the, one of those things that people don't talk about but act upon? Like, I'm just interested on your thoughts on that. I can't speak for like other people's artists, obviously, but I think artists sort of have a duty to um, depict the times. You know what I mean? I think I would struggle really with an artist who has nothing to say at these times, more because I think if one doesn't have anything to say in in times such as these, I wonder if they would ever really have anything to say, do you know what I mean? And and I think 
if art is nothing else, it should be purposeful, you know? And that purpose can take on like many different forms. And I, I would never impose my will on someone else's work. Do you know what I mean? I see myself honestly as a facilitator, you know, I think this, what I see as A&R or, you know, marketing records is, is us facilitating someone else's vision without coloring it, you know? I think in terms of artists, I think I'm naturally attracted to people who have purpose. And I'm honestly, I'm, I, I think I would be somewhat suspicious of a lack of purpose, you know? Yeah, totally. And it, and, it, and it sounds like in the past year, you've sort of taken advantage of this sort of pause moment that we've all had to be able to bring more emphasis to the subject in the future when things you know, I, I'm not going to say the expression when things return to normal because things will be different. So, I mean, it sounds like you're really pretty much embracing the fact that things will be different. Yeah, I think they have to be, don't they? The live arena is going to be very different when it comes back and it's going to have a lot of new players. And I think um, we all have a, a duty to act a bit more responsibly, don't we? Jamie, I've, I've got a, a last question as well. You were mentioning earlier the um, how gigs and you were thinking about all of the heavy equipment you're dragging around the world and how it felt like a, a real kind of thing that should move into the past, really, a relic. And it's not really a, a future way of thinking. You were also saying that um, you'd like to not have any physical product for the record label in an ideal world. And I do hear the optimist talking when I hear that. But in an ideal world, how would you imagine if if these huge sort of heavy laden gigs are something from the past. How would you imagine gigs of the future without having to think about the practicalities of it? Yeah, I, th I think it's about um, like using different materials. So like I, I want to experiment with fabrics and things that are very light and light itself, <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? And um, using perhaps I don't know I'm I'm still there's there's lots of ideas that we have I don't want to sort of reveal them all on a podcast because um, I kind of want to do them first. <laughs> I am, my company, my company is my company is lucky enough to manage like a visual artist called Tobias Rylander. And um, Matthew, he and I, it's a problem that we, we want to kind of, you know, solve. And I think it will be about, you know, alternate materials using um, different types of light sources, like maybe projections. Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Matthew is like... Only convention says we have to play at night. Why would we not play in the daytime and use daylight? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but on a practical level, like, Matthew is really, um, he wants it to be a much more human experience. Mm. So um, he is very much on the tip that, you know, we will achieve a scale of performance rather than a scale of production. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he wants that to be the show, like the performative element. Mm. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. It's gonna be a it's gonna be really exciting to do a new show. Like we we really, you know, we love like the live arena. It's been um been kind of like tough to not have shows but it's also been like a welcome pause for us to sort of you know reimagine what it looks like for the future you know but I am optimistic about the future and I, I feel I feel really passionate about this stuff you know and it's it's a very emotive subject isn't it it's like you know I'm excited about the convention in Glasgow Mm. I want to do something at that. Let's do something, Jamie. Yeah, do you know what? I yeah. think we should we should talk about that because I have a, I have a couple of like ideas of mm. some things that 
could be done around it that could really sort of create like <laughs> new stories. <laughs> Thanks to Jamie for coming onto the podcast. Um, Faye, I think both you and I really um, enjoyed speaking to Jamie. What, what, what did you make of that conversation? Oh, I just think it's so inspiring just hearing all the work that they're doing, the work they're doing together to reimagine what live shows can be. I think that's what I found very inspiring from the conversation. Just this vision of the future of not just thinking about oh, we have to stop doing this. It's about, no, but we can do this. We can do this in a really beautiful, new, interesting way. And it was, mm. I loved the story about working with Greta. I just thought that was very, you sort of see these things happen, especially when it's with uber famous bands like the 1975 and you think, oh, you know, they're all sipping champagne with Greta and like it's all really this kind of, high end thing but it just sounded so down to earth just this kind of awkwardness almost of getting together and and what it meant to them to meet her and yeah mm. I, I really I really enjoyed that story it sounded like they were really in awe of her I mean J Jamie was mm. like she's she's a punk I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm in the presence of of real no bullshit greatness like mm. you know I, I loved hearing that um I, I mean i wasn't expecting i must admit going into the conversation I, we were hoping to speak to him about um the experience of recording with greta but i don't think either of us anticipated hearing about the toxicity of being involved with that that they mm. then came to terms with and jamie was saying that he was really baffled and and by that reaction and quite concerned for matt healy and his in his sort of mental welfare given the sort of criticism they came in for and and it is strange isn't it because ultimately their position and their their work with Greta was really coming from a place of um I think mm. he called it a really unifying statement like why would you re receive so much criticism if you went out there and basically said let's protect our planet for mm. our own sake you know this this is our planet our home it's full of wonder let's protect it for ourselves and each other that doesn't feel like a particularly controversial statement no it's so strange people get up in arms about it yeah yeah, and so I, I, you know, I, I was, I was intrigued, um, fascinated to hear about the sort of division that um, that that created, and 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 some of the stuff that they had to, to cope with in the in the aftermath of that. And I agree totally with you about being really inspired about hearing them talk in that way about um, reimagining what the 1975's future live shows look like. You know, coming from a place of feeling a bit embarrassed about what they were doing and mm. and it coming from that awkward we've talked about it before in the podcast you just have this sort of like nagging feeling that that's not right and so you've you got to do something about it and so credit to them working with a, a creative director in order to basically reimagine that to to still be a fantastic spectacle for their fans so when they go to see the 1975 you'll still see a spectacular stage show but just doing it in a different way being creative mm. yeah we talked about that on the most recent episode of the podcast with Kiara from Julie's Bicycle like who better to come up with creative solutions um, in this situation than the creative industries we're in a mm. unique position to go right let's start with a blank piece of paper we're gonna have to do this differently so and it was great to hear them say that um had two other thoughts on the conversation as well. One was that I love that he was honest about the situation with physical products and Dirty Hit. Mm. And he was saying, you know, if it was down to him, that um, Dirty Hit wouldn't produce any physical products. But I know that would have raised a few eyebrows in the accounts department over there. Yeah. But that's, again, that's almost like the first step, isn't it? You, you sort of say, well, I don't really want to do this. And eventually you will find, you'll be looking for solutions and you will find a pathway through it. So great to hear that honesty. And um, I suppose just off the back of speaking to Jamie, just even if you were not a fan of the 1975, to see a band of that scale pushing this issue the last few years has been really, really important and has kept a whole load of conversation um, going. So yeah, as much as it doesn't really mean anything, but all I, my message to them is basically just keep going um, in that sense that just keep pushing, keep doing things you're doing because you are doing amazing work. So um, yeah, thanks to Jamie for, for coming on the podcast and sharing all of those stories. Absolutely. And with more and more musicians getting on board and, and feeling comfortable speaking out and, and getting involved in and labels and touring companies getting involved in greening practices, it's it's not going to be you know, not all of those arrows and bullets are going to be directed at, at people like Matt Healy anymore. You know, if it's mm. if it's everyone doing it, then that's, you know, that's a real power. You can't hate on the whole of music. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And hopefully we'll look back and be and um, 
some of the bruises that Matt Healy and his bandmates have suffered will mm. will certainly be worth it and he'll be yeah uh, not that we wanted him to have taken that criticism but um he has pushed things forward by by being that shield in a way yeah shall we uh should we do some recommendations Faye this is the the bit of the podcast where we like to leave you with um a book or an article or a documentary uh or Instagram live it can basically be anything um Faye have you got something you want to leave people with this week well I do actually and it was penned by you my dear friend Greg (laughs) um Kerrang ran an amazing set of articles last week on um, No Music on a Dead Planet about rock music's sort of response to the climate emergency. Greg, my co-host, wrote <laughs> a amazing article and I, I particularly love it because it's um, it's got solutions in there. It's got things you can do, actively things you can do to, to fix things and to push things forward and make things better. So it's a really good place to be and when, you know, a few years ago, all of the articles around climate and those kind of issues were just pointing out the negatives. It's so positive now to have some ideas and solutions and positive things that, that you can get involved with because everyone wants that, you know, everyone wants to be part of the solution so i thought it was a brilliant article thanks greg um <laughs> and there's also kerrang have run some really great like really short films featuring architects featuring and shikari and other amazing massive bands doing voiceovers for these beautiful short films with their take on climate and their sort of challenge really to the rest of the music industry to take this on seriously so i just thought that was a brilliant set of coverage from kerrang so head to their sites and yeah and find all of that stuff there definitely yeah credit to kerrang um my dad would be disappointed uh if he eventually found out that I wrote for Kerrang and it wasn't about Black Sabbath or something like that, it was about <laughs> climate action. It was as it was as unexpected for me as it was for anybody else. But yeah, no, I, I you know I don't want to take credit there. I think you're absolutely right for somewhere like Kerrang, you know, rock and metal bible to sort of pick that up and 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 give this issue that level of focus is is brilliant and just goes to show like. In episode one of this podcast, we talked about the the different worlds that you and I come from. I come from a music journalism background. For somewhere like Kerrang! to to do that, there were some people on social media saying like, wow, this is a bit of a curveball. That's exactly what we need. Mm. Like everybody can do their bit. It doesn't matter if you run a music magazine, like you can do your bit when it comes to climate. So um, huge credit to to the team over there. I agree with you. Some of their coverage is brilliant. If you go and find, if you go on Kerrang.com and Kerrang on all their social media, it's all still there. And all of the voices that got involved with that piece are hugely influential as well and i'm sure in hopefully in episodes to come on the sounds like a plan we'll get to speak to some of those people at the future as well so yeah my 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 pick this week is um is something that's not necessarily that timely um as in like it's not brand new this week it is it, it's a book is it the first out. coldplay album <laughs> <laughs> listen i still love the first coldplay album and um important to check off this week's reference to coldplay in the podcast right there <laughs> Um, it's the it's a book called The Future We Choose. I'm not sure if you've read this, Faye. Brilliant. But, um, I've listened to the audio book, actually. Have you? Yeah, have. it's it's fantastic. It's by um, Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. Um, Christiana was the former UN Executive Secretary for Climate Change and Tom was the Senior Political Strategist for the Paris uh, Climate Agreement back in 2015, 2016. Um, and this book does one very simple thing and it does it brilliantly. And it basically describes a future where we don't take the level of action that we need and it describes a future where we do take the level of action we need. And to be honest, if you pick it up, you're only going to leave wanting one of those options. And I read it last year. I thought it was amazing. I've handed it around lots of my friends and family. And it gave me so much energy to get on and, uh, and, and do the stuff that we've been doing. So um, I do urge people to go and check that out. Yes. And Christiana Figueres as well. I think there's this moment of her. She's this very incredibly positive character mm. um, who was sort of uh, one of the reasons why the 1.5 degree limit got put in place she did a huge amount of hard work on that but she's this huge positive character and i don't know if you saw the video of her when she realized that um joe biden had won the election she's She's literally jumping up and down screaming and it's the most joyful thing i've ever seen so yeah Yeah. if you get a chance to find that clip as well do it yeah it, it. it was the um uninhibited dance of somebody who (laughs) found out that it wouldn't be everything that she'd done would not be undone if that makes sense yeah and and the world wouldn't burn in the process exactly yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) 
um before we go i just want to say if you're listening to sounds like a plan for the first time we we love to hear from you we are on instagram um sounds like a plan podcast you can dm us there or uh we've got an email address as well which is sounds like a plan podcast at gmail.com so do get in touch and wherever you are listening to this episode of the podcast do uh rate the podcast and do make comments and review and um basically tell a friend because we're, we're still only on episode four and we still really want people to find out the podcast and we just want to spread the word um so thank you very much uh for listening this time thank you to you Faye. i think you deserve a massive long lie down after everything you did last <laughs> week uh thank you to jamie oban for being our guest and thank you to you for listening see you next time Thanks for streaming this episode of Sounds Like a Plan. It was hosted by Faye Milton and myself, Greg Cochran. The podcast was edited by Emma Snook. The co-production and artwork is by Stuart Stubbs and music by lightandthunder.com. The podcast is a New Allotment production. There's more about them at newallotment.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>